Hello, hello everyone. And before we get into today's episode, I just wanna make a very exciting announcement. Well, hopefully exciting. I'm, I'm excited for it at least. Last year, I released the Illuminati plush and it was absolutely crazy. So many of you were able to purchase one. It was a limited run thing. And unfortunately though, many of you were not able to get one. And I know I've heard the comments all year that you guys wanted one. Well, you ask and you shall receive because finally, even though I'm very slow to do this, a year later, we have the new Illuminati plush and it's available right now with Makeship. This year, we've upgraded some of the features. We are now having the Pyramid plush holding a teacup. We've added a little bit of blush, a little more detail to the eye. She's a little fluffier. She's perfect all the same. If you are interested in grabbing your own limited edition Pyramid plush, because they're only available for a couple weeks, then they go into production, um, make sure to check out the link from Makeship in the description box. If you watched Nickelodeon growing up in the 90s, then you'll undoubtedly remember the show Ren and Stimpy. What you likely don't know much about is John Chris Falusi, animator, illustrator, creator of Ren and Stimpy, and pedophile. Be aware, this episode does contain disturbing, potentially triggering content about child abuse. Welcome to another episode of The Corporate Casket. I'm Blair, and today we're going to be talking about Spumco, the animation studio behind the show Ren and Stimpy, and its creator, John Chris Falusi. He's someone who's a volatile artistic genius who pushed boundaries professionally while he used his fame and connections to groom two underage girls. So let's get into it. John Chris Falusi, more widely known as John K, spent his early childhood as an army brat in Germany. He told one film magazine that he'd spend those formative years running around in Belgium with his Sputnik toy, playing bagpipes and eating weird stuff he found on trees, then coming home to puke it all up. Once his family settled in Ottawa, Canada, he found a love of cartoons. John would watch Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, and Quick Draw McGraw. Fireman Huckleberry speaking. How's that? During class, he'd draw cartoon flipbooks in his history texts and caricatures of his French teacher in exercise books. I wasn't very good at anything in high school. I failed art every year, but for some reason, they always put me in the next year. It was the 70s, right? He said. But it was while John was in school that he discovered how animation worked and the series of images behind it. He also learned that if you make a cartoon funny, exaggerate the character, that was all you needed to be popular. At a young age, he already had the building blocks that he'd use later on when working on his shows. After finishing up public school, John enrolled in Sheridan College in Oakville, Ontario, which had one of the best animation programs in North America. He also met his girlfriend there, Lynn Naylor. Despite their fantastic reputation, John didn't like Sheridan. There wasn't enough exploration of the medium for him. One interview with him reads, "'There was no education,' Chris Felusi says, blunt about the outcome, but more diplomatic in explaining why not." Part of it was my fault. I was more concerned with partying and stuff. I saw mechanically how animation was put together. So it was all right for that. They teach you some really basic technical things. How to draw? No. How to act? No. How to compose? No. No animation skills do you learn in animation school. John wasn't done with animation though, not at all. John was also learning about animation from Reg Hart, who introduced him to Tex Avery cartoons and Bob Clampett's The Great Piggy Bank Robbery. Snake eyes. 
Daffy Duck, the most unhinged member of the Warner Brothers soon captivated John and he became inspired by the wild yet subtle expressions of the cartoons. Not only did John Kay adore Clampett's work after this, but he even met him and became close to Clampett's family who saw him as the carrier of the Clampett torch. I found the great piggy bank robbery online. And even though it's not exactly like Ren and Stimpy, the influence is obvious. Daffy is full of energy. The movement is loud, fast paced, and it doesn't even line up frame by frame, but it works. John Kay knew the animation he wanted to create, but it would also take some time before he got there. When he moved to LA in 1979, later convincing his girlfriend, Lynn, to follow him, they were broke and had to live in a roach infested apartment. Still, he met Bob Camp and Jim Smith and slowly started gaining connections that would serve him later. First, he found a job working on Heathcliff, which has been described as an unfunny animated version of a comic strip, then the Smurfs, and even the Jetsons. In 1986, he started working with Ralph Bakshi, who was a bit more his speed. Bakshi had worked on Fritz the Cat, Heavy Traffic, and more adult cartoons in the 70s. After a year of working together, John Kay and Bakshi had a chance to work on the revival of Mighty Mouse together and put their own spin on it. They mocked superhero conventions, made ironic commentary on pop culture and made plums for mums or jokes for the adults that might be watching this kid cartoon. We had a chance like we did with Ren and Stimpy, but we weren't good enough yet. Chris Felusi remembers of his time directing The Flying Rodent in the Cape. Even though it was the Mighty Mouse show, Mighty Mouse was just a buffoon and we kept writing him out of the show. The problem evaporated when Mighty Mouse was canceled. The titular event that led to the cancellation, I would argue, wasn't just John not being ready, but the moment when one character snorted a substance that resembled cocaine. Bakshi tried to explain that it was a crushed flower, but parent groups insisted this was encouraging children to become coke fiends, so John left the studio. After losing his promising job, John was in limbo. He knew he didn't wanna make cartoons the way everyone else was. He didn't want scripts and he didn't want any more children's cartoons that were made just to sell toys either. A revival of Beanie and Cecil for ABC did give him some work, but just like Mighty Mouse, it didn't last. One ABC executive that worked with him at this time sang John's praises, calling him one of the most talented people in animation. He just doesn't belong in children's programming. He's sort of like a wild Mustang, they said. And there's a certain beauty in a wild Mustang's raw state, but to become a Kentucky Derby winner, it has to be able to deal with structure and discipline. And that's where the potential downfall lies. Others argue that John didn't just need to be tamed, but he was a horrendous boss too. Apparently the Clampets themselves advocated and insisted John beyond the Beanie and Cecil revival and ABC gave John a chance. Not only was he difficult to work with, but he would have screaming matches with ABC. He'd put in gags that didn't exist in the storyboard. And the more they tried to pull John back, the more he wanted to shock and outrage them. One former worker claimed that it wasn't about making the best cartoon anymore, but making the most shocking and offensive one. John clearly wanted to push the boundaries and he was sick of being told no. Out of sheer frustration and idealism, John Kay, Jim Smith, Bob Camp, and Lynn Naylor, all of whom worked on Mighty Mouse, said they wanted to give animation back to the cartoonists. And thus the company Spumco was born in 1989. Hollywood company Spumco took their creations onto the web for the freedom it offers. Yeah, I'm the uh, webmaster of the Spumco site. John's over the top cartoons were needed given the censorship and the environment of the satanic panic. I watched a documentary about Ren and Stimpy called Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy that explains how John's cartoons were something fresh and how John himself was just as wild as his show. 
One writer for Ren and Stimpy said that all they thought John was was the next Disney. He got meetings at all the Saturday morning cartoon channels, NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox. J.J. Settlemeyer, one cartoonist, said that he never saw anyone take him through a storyboard the way John did, and everyone interviewed agrees with that. John's glasses would fly off, he'd break things, and you couldn't not hire him after seeing his pitch. Unfortunately, those executives did say no. One of them even had a security guard escort him off the premises. Thankfully, it wasn't long before Nickelodeon announced that they were looking for something different to launch their own set of cartoons. John got in touch with Vanessa Coffey, Nickelodeon's vice president of animation, and pitched her about every single idea he had. He had one called Jimmy the Hapless Boy, all about Jimmy, who had been created out of a vast collection of the best chromosomes in the world. He's an experiment. Nobody will admit that the experiment might've failed, John said. But it was two secondary cast characters from the Jimmy model sheet, Ren and Stimpy, that caught her eye. After flying out to New York and making a deal with the Nickelodeon heavyweights, he was advanced enough money to make a pilot. Now, believe it or not, I've been known- According to my source, Big House Blues introduces Ren and Stimpy sitting on a curb, forlorn and destitute. A voiceover mocks countless Disney animal pictures explaining natural enemies in the wild, the cat and the asthma hound chihuahua united in the face of adversity. The black rain clouds part, a kindly and avernacular sun shines on the pair. And they're flattened into a single squishy puce mass by a truck. The truck belongs to the city pound where Ren and Stimpy are incarcerated, awaiting the big sleep. Ren is rescued, but only because Stimpy has hacked up hairballs all over him and he's mistaken for a poodle by a hyperactive child. On the way out of the pound, Ren sees Stimpy, eyes welling tears, waving goodbye from their cell. Reluctantly, he stops the child. You can't have me unless you take Stimpy too, furious that he has to make such a bargain. The girl's mother welcomes the duo home by clapping an embarrassing puffy pink parka on Ren and introducing a little box for our big brainless putty. That was enough for Nickelodeon. Spumco was hired to produce a season's worth of Ren and Stimpy shows, six half hour episodes, each consisting of two complete stories approximately 11 minutes long. Vanessa Coffey had to beg the president of Nickelodeon to agree to those six episodes, but it was done. She was attracted to the passion and craziness as she puts it, and she and John got along incredibly well. John even ended up voicing Ren himself because he couldn't find anyone to give the intense insanity that he wanted for the character. While Ren was always full of rage, Stimpy was the stupid, wholesome one of the pair. The documentary compares Ren's wild attitude and Stimpy's wholesome one with John and Lynn. And as you can imagine, given this dynamic, they didn't last as a couple. Lynn left the studio and the employees, as one puts it, felt like they'd gone through a divorce and now they were left with psycho dad. While so many cartoons at the time were stiff, childish, and meant to sell toys, here John was creating hand-painted, meticulous, and absolutely crazy off-the-wall episodes. They'd sneak in adult humor into episodes, characters would have hallucinatory rants, there'd be gross body humor jokes and nonsense plots. You almost have to watch it to understand, and even still, you may not fully get it. According to John, the network executives didn't understand his humor at times and tried to change it. In one episode, Stimpy's Inventions, Stimpy created a happy helmet that was supposed to turn Ren happy. Too extreme, it's supposed to make him happy, not crazy, Chris Felusi reads from the story editor's notes. Change dialogue from you sick little monkey to take it off of me this instant. They totally missed the point. They didn't understand that Ren didn't like being happy, but that's the joke I say. Oh, they hated to hear that, Chris Felusi says. They'd say, we don't want to hear that's the joke. We want an explanation for why this is amusing, but it's a cartoon. They hated that explanation even more than that's the joke when we'd say, but it's a cartoon, they'd really go crazy. 
people truly loved the show, nonsensical humor included. It gained a large cult following, especially among young adults, not just the children it was trying to entertain. MTV started airing it at 10.30 p.m. on Saturdays, and a lot of the disgusting humor that found its way into other cartoons were shows like Zooms in focuses on a tooth or a pimple that's beautifully drawn, artistic, and yet revolting. It started here. Nickelodeon's audience among adults younger than 50 doubled, and one spokesperson said shops in the Universal Studios Florida park struggled to keep Ren and Stimpy shirts in stock. Clara Sinclair for CNN wrote in 1999 that Ren and Stimpy revolutionized cartoons and became the most popular cable TV show by its second season. John could do no wrong for some, but he was a dictator for others. Some say he's the hardest director they've ever worked for. One employee says they were screamed at three times in public, and a third said he had a sadistic edge. Just as John put more pressure on the artist, the studio began putting more pressure on him. The more views Ren and Stimpy got, the less creative control John had. They started hiring experts who would say things like, don't do this, don't do that. I don't get this joke, explain it to me. Isn't that going to confuse kids, Chris Felusi says. The more executives there were, the more trouble we got. Another massive problem was the fact that John insisted on seeing all the shows himself and making sure they were up to his standard before releasing them, spending time drawing and redrawing scenes over and over and over when they were on a deadline. The network wanted more and more, telling him to hire more people three times the crew he had at the time. All the while, his show became increasingly popular and the pressure grew from Nickelodeon. John started getting fan mail from those who were obsessed with the show. And before we continue on to discuss how and when the show fell apart, let's take a quick break to thank today's sponsors. The holidays are hectic, so it is the perfect time for HelloFresh. They send fresh pre-measured ingredients and some great winter and holiday recipes right to your door every single week. They've got the classics like the firecracker meatballs, the new recent love, the shoyu ramen. That was really good actually. I didn't know I could actually competently make ramen. That was really good. And they also have seasonal things going on. You know, you've got this balsamic and fig beef tenderloin, pecan crusted salmon. That sounds great, right? Well, it is. Or you can go for a cozy comfort food like chicken sausage and sweet potato soup for a cold winter night. And don't forget dessert. Satisfy your sweet tooth with seasonal limited time goodies like ginger spice cake truffles and cherry cheesecake swirl bars. And one of my favorite parts about HelloFresh is the ease of control through their app. I can determine what's coming in on what week and I can plan my meals out for weeks at a time. So I know exactly what's coming and when. So get started today by going to hellofresh.com casket14 and use code casket14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. That's up to 14 free meals and three free gifts at hellofresh.com casket14 and use code casket14. Considering the season, many of us are shopping online a whole bunch right now. But if you're doing it without honey, the shopping tool that finds these promo codes for you and automatically applies the best ones to your cart, you might be doing it wrong. There's a ton of codes out there right now for the holiday season and honey can help you get your savings hookup. Honey supports over 300,000 stores online. And the best part is, is once you install the Honey extension in your browser, you don't even have to do anything anymore. When you're ready to check out and online shopping, the Honey button drops down. It's got this cute little dancing coin and you just click apply coupons. It's super easy. And over this past week, I satisfied my stationary addiction once again by going onto Erin Condren's website and I went and bought up just about everything. I had a bunch of custom stickers made. I got new like front covers for my yearly planner. Like I am set and Honey was there to save me like 20%. It was great. 
So if you don't already have Honey, you could be just straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you're doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. And I'd never recommend something that I don't personally use. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com casket. That's joinhoney.com casket. In the meantime, John's attitude at work had also become a problem. Some artists claim there wasn't a single scene they created where John didn't throw away at least one of their drawings. He was overly critical and brutally punished his writers, throwing layouts on the floor and telling the artist it wasn't acceptable. Bob Camp, his protege in particular, was being treated very poorly and John threw away a ton of his work. Vanessa claims that when they worked together, it was initially fun, a give and take, but that simply ended. One episode, Man's Best Friend, were particularly violent. Vanessa told John she didn't like the scenes as they were investing in kids programming after all, and John told her to quote, go fuck herself, and that he wasn't going to take her notes anymore. John himself admits that he had a ton of problems with authority as he always had to bend to his unyielding father as a kid. Unfortunately, when he told Vanessa that he wouldn't be responsible for budgets or deadlines anymore, her hands were tied. What else was she supposed to do? She fired John and asked Bob Camp to take over. On September 28th, 1992, the LA Times wrote, Nickelodeon wants something for the show. I want something for the show, Chris Felusi said, expressing relief that he was now free to pursue other projects. They're both very strong visions and together they made for a really great show. But in pure reality, when you mix two really strong visions, it's going to take a long, long time to do the work. In many ways, Spumco was a high pressure creative boiler waiting to explode. Chris Felusi, who proudly claims to have been fired by almost every animation studio in town, has constantly been fighting with Nickelodeon over deadlines, finances, and the ribald nature of his cartoon. In the long run, this will be a good thing for everyone, Camp said on Friday. John is like a not ready for primetime player. The idea of him doing children's programming, it was good children's programming, great stuff, but he was not in his element. Bob Camp finished out the programming and a few years later, Ren and Stimpy Adult Party aired where John was allowed to do absolutely whatever he wanted with the characters. These are some of the raunchiest clips you'll see of Ren and Stimpy out there. And only after three episodes, Adult Party was canceled. After losing everything, his show, his friends, his job, that's when his upsetting behavior started to bleed into his personal life. John used to get fan mail and an entire stack's worth was from a young woman named Robin Bird. Robin herself says she had built John up in her mind as he had rock star status in the 90s to her. She claims she always wanted to work for him and she always imagined what it would be like to meet him, even going so far as to send him a videotape of her sitting on the floor of her room, just talking to him. Robin had only turned 14 when he wrote back to her. And as John himself says, I was falling in love with her letters. I know that's probably not right, but I was so smitten by her personality and her letters. And then I saw the videotape and I was like, holy cow, this girl is amazing. Robin idolized John and John undoubtedly took advantage of that. John claims that Robin would sometimes put double entendres about sex in them, which for the record does not make it okay for you to be romantic or sexual in any way with a minor. 
If a minor seeks you out and makes sexual comments, then it's still the adult's responsibility to shut that shit down. If John wanted to speak to her as a mentor, then he could have, but John took it a step further and started telling her dirty things over the phone. By the time she was 16, Robin actually moved in with John, thinking that it would be an internship and what she had always wanted. John calls it a bad decision, but says that Robin was just so convincing. That's in quotes. Yet it wasn't just one bad decision. See, after Robin took a break from John to work at other studios, she returned to him and found yet another different young girl that he supposedly had taken under his wing, Katie Rice. Katie also grew up watching Ren and Stimpy, and according to Robin, John had moved in with her only two days after Robin left. He began hiring young people that grew up on his show, people that would be devoted to him. But Robin was starting to realize how messed up his behavior had become, so she left. Some, like Vanessa, say John was always like this, and it deeply hurt her that she used Ren and Stimpy to lure girls to him. Others say that this wasn't the John they knew, or that they should have taken his locker room talk more seriously. And this is as far as the documentary went, saying that John manipulated these young women, but I wanted to learn more about their stories, about how inappropriate it became and how John got away with this. I will put a disclaimer here and say that generally speaking, I don't like to use Buzzfeed because I don't really see them as a reputable source of information. In this case, however, they kind of had the exclusive scoop. It was confirmed by other sources, but they were the originator and who broke the story. So I feel that it's important to credit them and use them as a source in this instance. In this case, they actually approached Robin and Katie and broke the story in their article, Drawing the Line. Though I will reference this article, I'm going to try and confirm this information with other various sources as much as possible. So that's the disclaimer. It's gonna get intense. And here we go. Although sexual abuse allegations against Chris Felusi have never been made public before, his relationship with Bird has been an open secret within animation so open that a girl he had been dating since she was 15 years old was referenced briefly in a book about the history of Ren and Stimpy. Tony Mora, an art director at Warner Bros and Gabe Swar, a producer at Warner Bros, worked alongside Bird at Spumco. The male artists said stories of how Chris Felusi sexually harassed female artists, including teenage girls, were known throughout the industry. It's always been there, Mora said. Moreover, Chris Felusi made his fixation on teenage girls plainly obvious in his art even as he worked on animated projects for the likes of Cartoon Network, Fox Kids, and Adult Swim. In an interview with Howard Stern in the 90s, the radio host asked him about a character in the comic book anthology the cartoonist was then promoting. Stern called Sody Pop a hot chick with big cans and nice legs. Chris Felusi responded with a smile, she's underage too. When she was a child, John asked her, do I ever make you tingle? And just after she turned 15, John, then 41, wrote, I'm thinking about you very hard right now, and I have a little tickle in my chest. Katie alleges that he didn't only talk dirty to her, but touched himself while speaking to her. She remembers being in 10th grade when John told her over the phone, quote, repeat after me, John's dick slides in my pussy. I had a lot of trouble reading that. I'm sorry, it just grosses me out every time, but he said that as he masturbated. Old AOL conversations and emails do corroborate these women's stories of John and even Katie's old diary entries say as much. In late 1995 or early 1996, Katie wrote that, I think this 40 year old man is hitting on me as she recalls one of her friends agreeing with her. The same winter in 1996, John raped Bird for the first time. I use the word raped because minors can't consent and she was only a junior in high school, but Buzzfeed uses the phrasing had sex because Bird, as far as I can tell from context, didn't resist. But again, she was a minor and it does seem kind of obvious that it looks like she'd been groomed by him too. So 
Yeah. I believed as a 16 year old dating him, oh, the world's against us. It shouldn't be wrong for him to date me. We're cool and rebellious because he's breaking the rules of society, Bird told Buzzfeed News. She said he told her their 25 year age difference was romantic, but she struggled. In a letter she wrote to herself during the internship, her method of working out her feelings at the time, she frets about all the ways she's alienating her 41 year old boyfriend with her nagging and her guilt inflicting, she says. Chris Felusi doesn't care about her emotional well-being. He may like my figure and face. He may adore my mind and ideas, but he does not have regard for my feelings as I do his, she wrote. The artist she shared an office with, Soir, who was in his early 20s at the time, remembers her frequently crying. Once she graduated from high school at 17, John hired her to work at Spumco and moved in with him. The documentary claims 16, BuzzFeed says 17. Either way, she was underage and John was over double her age. Mora and other former employees claimed that the atmosphere was so libertine and taking offense was offensive. So when John left out a drawing he made of Bird naked with a dog ejaculating onto her, no one said a word. Mora also remembers a party he attended at John's house sometime between 1998 and 2000 when John showed him explicit photos of Robin that she wasn't aware he was sharing. Swore has made similar claims and said that John showed him an entire binder of these photos. John asked Swore, do you like that? And he said, no, but apparently kept his mouth shut. Truly, I wish someone had the nerve to speak up against John's actions. They saw the photos, they saw John's obscenely young girlfriend and no one said shit. Thankfully in 2002, Bird found the strength to leave on her own, saying that she felt replaced by a younger woman, Katie Rice. According to Katie, when she worked for John, he sexually harassed her and quote, was doing all sorts of bizarre stuff waiting naked in his living room for when I let myself into his house to work in the morning, walking around with his wiener hanging out of his pants, telling me that his friend's advice to get me was to just rape me one day. She did finally leave after this rape threat and finding child porn on his computer. One image in particular of a young girl that looked to be about 10, lying with her face in a fearful expression stuck with her. Another ex-girlfriend of John's who asked to be anonymous also claimed to see naked images of prepubescent girls on John's computer around this time. I want to make it very clear here that these are only allegations because as of right now, we don't have anything to confirm if John was in possession of child porn. However, we do know that John had underage girlfriends because even his lawyer has not denied that. A few days after Buzzfeed broke the story, the New York Times also wrote about it and said that John's lawyer had issued a statement in response to these allegations. The 1990s were a time of mental and emotional fragility for Mr. Chris Felusi, especially after losing Ren and Stimpy, his most prized creation, the statement said. For a brief time, 25 years ago, he had a 16 year old girlfriend. Over the years, John struggled with what were eventually diagnosed mental illnesses in 2008. To that point, for nearly three decades, he had relied primarily on alcohol to self-medicate. Since that time, he has worked feverishly on his mental health issues and has been successful in stabilizing his life over the past decade. This achievement has allowed John the opportunity to grow and mature in ways he'd never had the chance at before. And I don't really care if John, as a pedophile, sees this as an opportunity to grow. I'm grateful that Bird has been able to find some peace in this situation now. And she even says that her therapist has encouraged her to start drawing again. She and Rice have even become good friends after they worked up the courage together to share their experiences. Bird adds that he took 10 years away from her and Rice adds that even though John made her a better artist, she would rather be a worse artist than have to deal with what he put her through. Even if the statute of limitations has expired, John deserves to be remembered as the person that he truly is. Nickelodeon removed John's portrait from their studio and Paramount, which ran the 2003 adult party reboot, said they weren't aware of the allegations, but will never work with him again. 
Now, one thing I agree with The Guardian with is that the documentary about John makes him appear like he's this damaged, redeemable character while not giving much attention to all of the incredibly serious allegations against him. The worst part of this though, is that at least for me, it's the fact that everyone knows that this happened. We know because he's admitted it. He's posted to Facebook, giving an incredibly backhanded apology to his victims and openly saying what he'd done, he wrote. To Robin and Katie especially, I wish I could have made my apologies directly to you, but now that I have gone public, it seems this is the only way to express my regrets. Robin Bird and Katie Rice are two women I was very close with at one time, but I stupidly managed to spoil everything. An article recently came out which describes some inappropriate behavior in the late 90s and early 2000s. There is some general truth to it, but some things I remember differently, some not at all. The writer exaggerated and presented some things out of context for tabloid consumption. I won't debate the specifics in public. Now, I just wanna confirm these specifics here because John was accused of rape, grooming, and manipulating these women when they were children. If any of that is true, it's disturbing, but the idea that he won't even attempt to clear his name or deny raping Bird in the hotel room is kinda sus. Maybe this is just me reading way too far into it. Maybe he knows that bringing attention to it will only make things worse for him. I'm not sure if this is a PR move or he just doesn't wanna hide it. Plus the way that John keeps saying they were friends, the way he implies that Robin and Katie liked being around him is also kind of upsetting. Imagine being a young teen and having your idol telling you that you have potential and they want to tutor you. Like that would be huge for these vulnerable kiddos and no adult should prey upon that, but that's what he did. Within the apology, John showed photos of Robin and him together. He said that he wanted to be pen pals with her, even though he knew it was a futile hope. And he comes across as incredibly needy, desperate and guilt tripping. He also wrote, I was a happy, silly kid, but once I turned 12, I started having bouts of terrible black depression for no seeming reason. It got worse in high school and continued to plague me for decades afterward. After Ren and Stimpy were taken away from me, it became harder and harder for me to trust in anybody. So when I did find kindred spirits like Robin and Katie, I'd obsess over them and became too possessive. John went on to say that he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and ADHD and compared his possessiveness to that of a woman who stalked him in previous years. Justifiably, people were pissed because stalking victims, people with bipolar disorder and people with ADHD don't use that to rape underage girls. In the comments of this post, Robin refused to accept John's apology, saying that she didn't find it strong enough, heartfelt, and what she called a big pile of manipulative crap. When digging through, I found another comment that read, you changed my life forever for the worst night back when I was 14 and had a girl's name. I never told anyone. I'm so unbelievably glad I didn't end up killing myself over a sad little man like you long ago. As this is a Facebook comment, I can't say how true it is, but we can without a doubt confirm that John manipulated and groomed Katie and Robin. As for John Stalker, I'll briefly recount what happened there too. An animator and cartoonist by the name of Alana Pritchard said in a 2012 interview with LA Record that she was involved in a potential new animated short with John, which John was crowdfunding through Kickstarter at the time. LA Record had been publishing her cartoon series, Don't Let This Happen to You. And as far as I can tell, things were going pretty well. That is until later that year, Elena left dozens of comments on one of John's blog posts. She said he was a creep, treated women poorly, sabotaged her, led her on and made a wide variety of accusations. She wrote, this system you have devised of talking to me via these other people is flawed and cowardly. And how about this? From now on, I will not speak to you. I will talk directly to boys in their late teens and early twenties only and let you read what I say from there. Ask yourself honestly how you would like me doing that. 
She insinuates that two of them are engaged, writing, you're not acting like a man who's going to be married at all, and it makes me not want to marry you. Though I'm not sure what else happened behind the scenes, there's speculation that she was arrested for violating a restraining order against John. Most of my sources say she violated a court order without any specifics though. When she was bailed out, she had little to no money and knew she'd have to serve time. Her mentor, none other than Ralph Bakshi, told her to document her time in prison, and she did exactly that. Armed with nothing more than a golf pencil and whatever paper I could get my hands on, I drew the strange world into which I'd been dropped, said Pritchard. Her style is incredibly reminiscent of John Kay's and her remarks on the prison system actually did lead to genuine reform. Some cartoons feature guards refusing to allow a prisoner to shower after four days. Women cartoon characters would rejoice over toilet paper, things like that. According to Pritchard, the LA County Sheriff's Department said that they now ensure all inmates get showers within 24 hours of entering the jail, and many wrote to her expressing how impacted they were by the drawings. Unfortunately, Elena's concerning behavior has continued on to this day, and she relentlessly tags Tom York of Radiohead and Connor Oberst of the band Bright Eyes in her posts. A week ago as of writing this, she was posting videos, tagging both of them and begging Oberst to explain to her if they're a couple or not. She did in fact stalk and harass John and that's of course not okay, but I I think this is not a good pattern either. Like you don't wanna give him the opportunity to kind of be a sympathetic character. So this is not great. The reality though is Elena went to jail, but she didn't groom John. John did that to Robin and Katie. What John did to these women when they were young is sickening. And there's a disgusting hypocrisy in the fact that his alleged stalker faced justice, but he never will. I wish I had a happy ending for this episode, but unfortunately I just don't. And I don't think I ever will. I will say this though. If you grew up on or enjoyed Ren and Stimpy, you're still allowed to. If you're excited for the potential Comedy Central reboot that's been discussed in recent years, that's fine too. John did make a lot of changes for cartoons and the animated world. And it is also still perfectly valid to criticize his actions as an awful human being and make sure more people are aware of what he's done. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. If you wanna connect with me more outside of these, make sure to check out my Linktree link. It's gonna have other channels, social media, projects I'm involved in, all the good stuff is gonna be there. Thank you so much for making it to this episode and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.